But it is 4th of July. Wow, 4th of July. This is the 245th, did you count them? The 245th anniversary of what? I mean, can you tell me what this is really the anniversary of? Is it the anniversary of the birth of the United States? Is it the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence? Is it the anniversary of the start of the revolution? I mean, and what exactly are we celebrating today? Do you know? <laughs> you know, we like to think that things are really neat and tidy in history. But the truth is always a little messier than that, isn't it? Actually, the war itself, the Revolutionary War, started a year before. It started in April of 19, 19, 1775. That would be good, right? 1975? It was a very good year, though. It started in April of 1775 with uh, the battles of Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts. And at the time that the, the actual hostilities started, the colonists really most colonists did not want separation from Great Britain. What they were fighting for were their rights under the crown. They were fighting for their rights as part of the British Empire. They weren't looking to separate from the British Empire. But as the war wore on, it became obvious to everybody that there was no way back, that there was no way to, to kind of tie the knot. The resistance hardened on the part of the British and the British crown and there was absolutely no coexistence that was going to be possible between them. And so during the first year of the war, more and more the colonists realized that there was going to have to be a separation. They were going to have to go for independence. And in, uh, on April 12th of 1776, North Carolina was the first colony, the first future state, to authorize independence with its delegation. There was a wartime Congress being held in, in Philadelphia trying to manage the war and manage things that were going on. Delegates were sent from all of the 13 colonies. North Carolina was the first one to authorize independence. But in May, actually May 15th, Virginia also authorized. And they wrote a statement, a resolution. And on June 7th, that resolution was offered to Congress that these 13 colonies should and of right ought to be separate from the British crown. But of course, Congress couldn't make a decision. Right? <laughs> and so the, uh, the resolution was delayed. And then on June 11th, though, what the, what the Congress did do was authorize that a committee would draft a statement explaining the reasons for the separation, for the independence, should it actually be voted upon. And it wasn't clear at all that it would be voted upon. And there were five members of this committee, and the three that we know of most fully is Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin. And uh, it's interesting, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams became friends during this process of the revolution. Uh, but then after they became presidents, they became bitter enemies. And for 14 years after uh, Jefferson's presidency, they didn't really speak to one another. But uh, John Adams broke the silence. And the interesting thing is they both died within five hours of each other on the 4th of July, 1826. It's just it's one of those things of history. It's where did that come from? You know, how did that happen? But I digress again. You get that one for free. On July 1st, nine states authorized and endorsed independence. And on the 2nd of, of July, 12 states authorized independence, but New York abstained, not because they were against independence, but because they didn't have authorization from the, the state headquarters. So on the July 4th, 
the day we're celebrating, what the colonies did do, what the delegates did do, was approve the draft of the Declaration of Independence that Thomas Jefferson mostly had written. That's what we're celebrating today. We are celebrating the approval of the draft, just a rough draft, of the Declaration of Independence. That wording was approved on that day. The next, uh, it was on uh, July 15th, New York finally, lately, came to the party and endorsed. And on the 19th of July, Congress authorized that the draft, the rough draft of the Declaration of Independence, be engrossed. What that means is that a final copy would be prepared. That's the copy that is still in the National Archives, that final engrossed copy. And on August 2nd, that engrossed copy was um, presented to the full Congress and signed by those who were present, but only a fraction of the eventual 53 or 56 signers were present that day, so others signed later. And the last signer didn't sign until after the turn of 1777. So you see, truth is a little bit messier. There was a process to this. At the beginning, the colonists didn't even want independence or separation from Britain. They wanted the rights that they felt that they were due as colonists, as citizens of Great Britain. So Jesus is also viewed as a revolutionary by many people, both a social revolutionary, even a political revolutionary. And certainly the people that were following him at the time looked at him as a revolutionary because they understood the Messiah to be the one who was going to reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. But I see him not as a macro-revolutionary, and we've talked about this before. He wasn't trying to work from the top down. He was trying to work from the bottom up and from the inside out. He was a micro-revolutionary. He was a personal revolutionary. He was trying to get individual people to be able to fight their interior revolution first before they turned outward to do whatever they were going to do. So, looked at that way, when did the Christian revolution begin? Because we talk about this. What was the birth of the Christian revolution? What was the birth of Christianity? When did it actually happen? Was it at Jesus' birth? Was it at Jesus' baptism? Was it at the beginning of his ministry that it began? Was it at Calvary with the cross? Was it Easter when he rose? Was it Pentecost when the Spirit finally infused the followers of Jesus in a way that they were able to really move forward? Now, like the Americans at the beginning of the revolution. Jesus was not pursuing separation from Judaism. And we miss this sometimes. Jesus wasn't trying to start a new religion. He told his followers that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He was trying to reform Judaism from the inside out. He was trying to bring the hearts of the people back to the Father. He was trying to remove the roadblock that the Pharisees and the temple system had become between the people and their God. He was trying to change the face of Judaism and bring it back to the heart of the Father. But he wasn't trying to abolish it. He said as much. I'm not here to abolish the law. It's interesting that Martin Luther didn't want to separate from the Roman Catholic Church either at the beginning of the Reformation. But in each case, the British, the Jewish, and the Catholic authorities made the separation inevitable by their absolute hard resistance and the inability for the reformers 
to coexist with them within their tent in any way, shape, or form. Now, most scholars believe that the church began, the Christian church began at Pentecost, that moment when the followers finally realized, recognized the full impact of the resurrection and what that meant. Finally, from the inside out, were infused with spirit in a way that they were able to boldly go forth and do the things that they needed to do. But, as we were talking about before, the truth is always a little bit messier. The early church was persecuted. The early church was persecuted for 150 years by the Romans and at the beginning by the Jews also. And so the church was underground. It didn't have a chance to really break through in any way culturally or in terms of society or politically in any way like that. It was underground. So it wasn't a revolution in the way we normally think of a revolution, but it was changing Roman culture and Roman society slowly from the inside out. More and more Romans were being converted from their ancestral faith to this new faith. And so it was becoming obvious to Roman leadership that Christianity was a force to be reckoned with, but it was slow and it was moving for 150 years. But at the same time, this wasn't the followers of Jesus' intent. They were following Jesus as Jesus taught them Not that they were supposed to change society, change political systems, but they were supposed to change their own hearts. Remember Paul, when he's talking, he says, you're supposed to follow the the leaders that are presented to you. Follow the authorities in your government because they've been appointed by God. And he said, if you're a slave, stay a slave. If you're a woman, stay submissive. If you are single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. In other words, don't rock the boat. Keep the status quo. Because the time is short. And of course, he and the first followers believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And so they thought, there is only time for us to transform ourselves, not to transform society. But I believe that if Paul knew that there would be 2,000 years and counting from the time that he wrote those words, that he still would have said, fight the interior revolution first. Because until you are transformed within, from within, until you see life with your father's eyes, then you're just going to make a mess of anything you try to do out there. You will do more harm than good if you haven't had this transformation happen first. Fight the interior revolution first. Their intent was to change individuals from the inside out, not society from the top down. And in fact, when that actually did happen in the 4th century, when Constantine first embraced Christianity, removed any religious discrimination, basically decreed religious tolerance throughout the empire, and then about 80 years later, Christianity became the state religion of Rome and was completely aligned with Roman power. That's when the people who were still trying to learn this lesson from the inside out, to follow Jesus with a purity of their spirituality, they left the Roman Empire. They headed for the deserts, and they began the monastic movement in the Christian tradition in the 4th century. And so it's interesting that as soon as Christian, Christianity became a revolution, as soon as it changed the face of society, 
They saw it as not being pure anymore. They saw it as being corrupt now. They saw it as being unrecognizable and changed in such a way that they could no longer find what they were looking for with their God to the point that they had to exit and go out and create their own communities or live solely as hermits themselves. The the desert monks were waging their interior revolution and they couldn't do it in the noise and the distraction and the corruption of the villages, towns, and the centers of Christianity as they had become after the fourth century. They wanted to go back to the pure way of Jesus. And tradition has them fighting demons and dragons, but what they're really fighting, of course, is the interior compulsions and obsessions, the distractions, the egoic mind that keep all of us from being able to see what is right in front of us, keep all of us from being able to see with the Father's eyes, keep all of us from being able to be aware of the love that is absolutely ours. Still, though, there are parallels between the macro and the micro. Or we can say that the macro mirrors the micro. Israel's journey throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, was understood by the Jews as being the journey of one person. Israel is often anthropomorphized as one person, just a child of God, a son of God. But as one person... And as you look at what Israel collectively goes through in that period, you can see the shape of every person's journey. It has the same motifs. It has the same shape. And so we, see is, we can see Israel as having this macro shape that is mirroring the micro. So the responses of the journey of the groups and of nations can mirror the individual and the personal responses and choices of the interior revolution. Now, if we want to fight this interior revolution ourselves, if we want to go through the process of transformation, if we want to get to spiritual liberty, what can we learn from the shape and the decisions and the details, the expressions of one of those macro journeys? And I thought what we do today on the 4th of July is take a look at the Declaration of Independence and see how Jefferson expressed the thoughts of the delegates and of the country as a whole in terms of what they were trying to do to find their freedom. And it's written in your handouts if you want to follow along. We're just going to look at the first three paragraphs and the last. But here's how it begins. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. All right. We don't really talk that way anymore, do we? But let's see if we can read between the lines and see and hear what is Jefferson saying. The first thing that he's doing is he's assuming that these political bands, these political connections, are not divinely instituted. They're not divinely destined and they're not indisputable. 
See, up until this point, the kings of Europe claimed the divine right of kings, that their power was derived directly from God, and nobody could dispute it, or no, and nobody could dispute their decisions among the people. Jefferson and the delegates are throwing that right in the face. They're saying, no, they are not divinely instituted. These bands are contracts. They are alliances. And they exist to serve the people and can stand only as long as they serve all parties. It's a contract between the people and their government. It's not a divine institution. Just like Jewish law, what did Jesus say? He said that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The law is made for people to be able to help them to live within the group, to keep the group strong, to keep the group defended, to keep the group fed. The law is made for that so that the people can survive and find in their group, in, in, their, in their nation, in their tribe, the ability to go deeper into their own lives and spirituality. But the law exists for the people, not the people for the law. The law exists for the people's benefit, not just the people existing to obey the law. Think about what's holding you in place right now. Think about your relationships. Think about your jobs. Thinking about your living arrangements. Think about your group affiliations. These are contracts that you have agreed and entered into to submit to for whatever reason. Are they still serving all parties well? Or have they become dysfunctional? Have they become corrupt? Have they, are they serving just one and not the other? Are they out of balance? Are they still serving or are they just familiar by now? Always been like this, we say. We don't even see that we can change things because it's just always been this way. The attitudes and the beliefs. Should some of these bands that you are part of be dissolved? I don't know. Not irresponsibly, of course. But what Jefferson is saying is we need to take a look at what binds us and see that it is still functional. Make sure that it's still serving the greater good. And not just because it's familiar, and not just because we're afraid of the unknown, afraid to move forward. And why should we do this? He says, because there are human rights, there are basic human rights that do derive directly from the laws of nature and from God who created nature. In the second paragraph, he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. There are self-evident truths, truths that need no further proof. They're self-evident to all of us that we are all created equal with unalienable rights. Gotta love that word, unalienable. We don't talk that way anymore either, do we? You know, what's an alien? <laughs> well, 
An alien is a foreigner, someone who doesn't come from where you are, someone that you don't understand. But to alienate means to estrange, to means to turn off, to divide, to distance from, to isolate, to cut off, to transfer. These are unalienable rights. These rights cannot be estranged, turned off in any way, distance, isolated. And these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can't alienate these. They are self-evident truths. And the state exists to protect these rights and only has power because the people give the government power to protect their rights. And when the state fails to protect people, the people have the right to abolish the state. Now, interiorly, each of us needs to protect our own rights from ourselves, don't we? These same rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How much of our own compulsions and obsessions limit us and keep us from these basic self-evident unalienable rights, limiting beliefs, the trauma of the past. When do we know when change, when revolution is absolutely needed? Knowing that that change and that revolution, it's going to be hard. It's going to make things worse before they get better. When do we know that it's time for change? Jefferson continues, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. What is he saying? He's saying a revolution should never be taken lightly because a revolution will cause much more harm in the short term. And the only reason that you would take that path, create that disturbance, make things worse in the short term, is because that you have a chance and the promise of things being better in the long term. We will all, as a group and as individuals, think about it, suffer injustice and tyranny as long as we possibly can. Haven't you done that before? You know things are bad. You know maybe things should change. But you will continue to suffer the difficulties as long as you can, out of fear, out of inertia, out of self-preservation, and sometimes out of good sense. It shouldn't be taken lightly, some of the changes we're talking about here. Most of us are going to need to hit that Calvary moment, the moment when it seems like everything that we were holding on to, everything that we were clinging to, everything that had kept us going is now gone. Just like the followers of Jesus when he died on the cross, everything that they had focused on was taken from them. We need to hit a moment like that often before the revolution looks less frightening and less painful than the status quo. And that's really it, isn't it? 
when our desire can overtake our fear, our desire for change or something new can overtake our fear, then, and only then, are we ready to make substantive changes in our lives. And this is how it is personally, not just politically. We see the better path for our lives often long before we make a change. We sometimes see the dead end of the path that we're on long before we're willing to repent and make a change. We fear the revolution. We fear the unknown. And we would rather suffer what is familiar to us than risk that unknown. The devil we know being preferable to the devil we don't know, right? If you think about it, it's a form of codependency. We throw that word around a lot. What is codependency really? Well, it's excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner, or could be a group in this case, who typically requires support because of an illness, because of an addiction, because of some sort of dysfunction. And it's behaving in overly passive and caretaking ways to keep that status quo that has a negative impact on our lives, on our relationships. But we will keep that going as long as we possibly can. We will suffer evils as long as they are sufferable because the alternative is so frightening. And why is that alternative so frightening? Well, it's fear, of course. We're afraid that this is as good as it gets. Maybe there's really nothing else out there that's going to be any better. Why should I go through this hell if it's just going to be like this or worse? We're afraid that sometimes we don't deserve anything better. We're afraid that we're going to lose what little we do have. We're afraid that we're not going to survive the hardship of the transformation, the hardship of the transition, the revolution. Remember the Hebrews after they were taken out of Egypt by Moses through these miraculous means, out of the slavery and the hardship they faced there, getting into the wilderness and crying because they didn't have their leeks and their onions anymore in the desert? looking back over their shoulders. Remember Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back? Do you remember Jesus saying, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven? All of those, what are they about? They're about the ability to go forward, to make the changes that are necessary in our personal lives, interiorly, and also in our groups when those changes have shown themselves to be necessary, when those changes have shown themselves to be worth the hardship, the destruction temporarily of the revolution, to be able to get to something else. If we are really going for kingdom, it's going to require us to let go of everything that we think we know, everything that is familiar, that we've been clinging to. When are you really going to be willing to do that? when your desire overtakes your fear, when you start to see that you are something other than the ego that is what is going to lose in this transformation. It's a different kind of process, one that we're not usually even cognizant of in many ways. What finally convinced the colonists, the American colonists, to revolt against what was the global superpower? We don't think of it that way because they're so ancient, right? You know, they just had wooden boats and stuff. Britain was the global superpower. The sun never set on the British Empire. It was so 
worldwide at one point at the height of its uh, extent that the sun never set on the British Empire. What convinced the colonists that they could do this? What convinced them that they even had a hair's chance of winning? Generations of abuse convinced them. The fact that it was never going to change convinced them. Actually starting the hostilities and realizing that Britain was only going to dig its heels in more and more convinced them, finally. After trying everything they possibly could try, and they did for decades, tried everything they could politically, legislatively, in, in terms of mediation, to secure the rights that they knew they needed, only to realize that Britain was never going to give in. They had to go through all of that first. They had to suffer all the evils while they were still sufferable before they were willing to make a change. And what will convince us to revolt against our own spiritual codependence, the things that are limiting us interiorly? What will convince us to take a path that we know will be harder than just staying put at first for the promise of new life, for the promise of freedom, spiritual liberation, Jesus was this personal and interior revolutionary. Absolutely. He risked everything to pursue his unalienable rights. What rights were those? <laughs> he called his rights Abba. He called his unalienable rights kingdom. And that included life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that's how he envisioned these rights. Something that was poured out on everyone equally. All they had to do was pick them up. But to pick them up required this revolution, this transformation, you see. And the ultimate unalienable right, God's love, can't be cut off, can't be divided, can't be estranged from us in any way. And Jesus set his followers on this path. He tried to tell them and show them what it was going to take, what they would have to go through in terms of the descent before they could hit the ascent on the other side. He focused his followers on the path, and a few of them, maybe not even a majority of them, actually made it to their personal interior revolution. They fought these interior battles, interior battles especially from Calvary to Pentecost, they really didn't understand for all the years that they were following Jesus what he was really all about. But at Calvary, when it was all taken away, at the, re at the resurrection, they didn't recognize him for some time. But when that impact finally fe fell, when they finally understood, that Pentecost moment came, everything had changed. But think of the process between the absolute low point of Calvary to the high point of Pentecost, that was not a pleasant time for them. It was a difficult time for them. He fought the interior battles through that, broke through to freedom, broke through their limitation. But as their movement grew, here's the pattern again, right? As the Christian movement grew, as it grew out of its roots in Jewish circles into Gentile circles, and as it became allied with Roman power, it became an institution of itself, just another institution, no longer revolutionary anymore. Now teaching conformity to its own beliefs, now teaching passivity and obedience, now teaching security 
that could be gleaned from being a part of this institution. No longer serving its purpose, the purpose that Jesus had given to his followers of turning every table over, turning your lives upside down to be able to see something absolutely new and different right in front of you. The followers of Jesus started with that kind of fire. They ended up an institution that no longer served the purpose. And a thousand years later, a little man in Italy rediscovered his unalienable rights, rediscovered God's love and the freedom in God's love so completely that he started his own personal and interior revolution. He cast off the comforts and the familiarity of his own life, the well-to-do life that he was born into. And he started, through his followers, an exterior revolution. Francis of Assisi, who started the order of the Franciscans, started with this fire, started by actually working against the status quo of the Catholic Church of that time, eventually spoke truth to power, stood in front of the Pope, and told him what he thought the church had become that was so far off the mark. Went to Jerusalem after that and did the same thing. Tried to reunite Christians and Muslims. Couldn't do that either. But he wasn't afraid to try. He was a revolutionary of his own. Not by intent, but by because the revolution that had taken place inside of him impelled him to whatever he was doing outside. And his followers took that on in the first generations. But as they grew and as they slowed and as they accrued power and, and material wealth of their own, they became another institution. Morris West puts it like this. A man like Francis of Assisi, for instance, what does he really mean? A complete break with the pattern of history. A man born out of due time. A sudden unexplained revival of the primitive spirit of Christianity. The work he began still continues, but it's not the same. The revolution is over. The revolutionaries have become conformists. The little brothers of the little poor man are rattling alms boxes in the railway squares or dealing in real estate to the profit of the order. Of course, that isn't the whole story. They teach and they preach and they do the work of God as best they know, but it is no longer a revolution. I really think we need one now. Francis lived his revolutionary life, but his following became an institution, its own form of conformity with themselves. Every generation, every single generation, every person must be willing to engage in their own revolution, or they will end up living under the tyranny of their own fear, become an institution of their own. And that institution will keep us passive, and it'll keep us spiritually codependent. Now, how do we do what Francis did? How do we do what the followers of Jesus did? When desire overtakes fear, Richard Rohr puts it this way. It is said that Francis's great prayer, which he would spend whole nights praying, was, who are you, God? And who am I? Did you love that? Who are you, God? Who am I? Contemplative prayer helps us to live into these questions. 
as we observe our minds in contemplation, first we recognize how many of our thoughts are defensive, oppositional, paranoid, self-referential, or in some way violent. Until we recognize how constant that mind is, we have no motivation to let go of it. Until we recognize how constant that mind is, we have no motivation to let go of it. Contemplation teaches us to say, that feeling is not me. I don't need that opinion to define me. I don't need to justify myself or blame someone else. Gradually, we learn to trust the wounds and the failures of life, which are much better teachers than our supposed successes. It's all a matter of letting go and getting out of the way. Therese of Lisieux would call it surrender and gratitude, letting my mind accept and surrender to the mystery that I am to myself. It doesn't need to quickly categorize this mystery as sinful, wrong, and evil, or as good, meritorious, and wonderful. It just is. When I can no longer hold myself up, I fall into the mystery of God and let God hold me. When I no longer name myself right or wrong, I let someone else name me. When I allow God to keep revealing the deeper mystery of mercy and grace and love to me, I don't categorize or hold God too easily, too quickly, as if I understand God, as if I got God in my pocket. Those who allow God to reveal God's self are the very ones who know that God is love. They know that God is not a harsh judge or a conditional lover, that God's love is an endless sea of mercy and unconditional acceptance. The deeper you go, the more you fall into the mystery. And as you fall into the mystery of an ever-loving God, you're able to accept the mystery of yourself. And as you accept the mystery of yourself, you fall into the mystery of God. You don't know, and it doesn't matter, which comes first. People who love God love themselves and everybody else. People who love themselves and everybody else also love God. It's our unalienable right, this love of God. And when our desire finally overtakes, finally outweighs our fear of the unknown, we become willing to let go, to tear down the institutions that we have built up in ourselves and the ones that we have submitted to around us, the state we're in, We're willing to suffer the short-term hardship of revolution, of transformation from the inside out, to get to the long-term freedom of spirit. Are you feeling that there must be more to life? More life? More liberty? More happiness? Are you willing to see where that desire takes you? Have you tried everything within your status quo to get there? Are you still feeling unfulfilled? Are you tired of being afraid, anxious, worried, obsessive, controlling? Are you hearing yourself, always defending yourself, always defending your beliefs, always debating? Are you often annoyed, angry, offended, indignant at others and at life? If you are, you're getting close to where the desire for freedom from all of that stuff will overtake your fear of the unknown. You're getting close to revolution. And how do you break through? How do you spark this interior revolution? 
And remember, this is interior, not exterior. I'm not saying you have to burn your lives down. I'm not saying you have to leave your families or your jobs. We do this in place, right? Now, once you do the interior revolution, maybe you realize you need a different job. That's okay. But you're doing it from a good direction. You're doing it from a place of awareness and presence and not just reacting to the pain, reacting to the compulsive triggers. This is the interior revolution. When are we going to be ready for this? How do we spark it? The individual path for each one of us is going to be different. But it's going to have the same shape. It's going to have the same milestones along the way. And maybe the 4th of July can give us another clue to that shape. Let's take a look at the final paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. After the first three in the preamble that we read, there's a long list of grievances against the king and against Britain. And then they conclude here. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Don't you wish they would have just said what they mean? Can you imagine King George reading this? I think he popped a vein someplace in his neck. This is about as bold as it gets, isn't it? This is about as clear and unequivocal as it gets in a statement. It's what going all in looks like. There is no retreat from this. There's no way to walk it back, what they have said here. When we are as convinced as they were, when we are as convinced as Jesus was, as Francis was, of our inability to continue things as they are, of our unalienable rights to God's love, then we can be as bold as this. We can be willing to undergo the revolution of our own transformation. It'll look different in detail for each of us, but it'll have the same shape, and more importantly, it'll have the same effect on our lives. Once we know that we know that we hold an unalienable right to a love that we can never lose, that's when the revolution has begun. Let's pray. Father, you have told us over and over and keep telling us over and over every moment of our lives that your love is an unalienable right. That what we have in you, 
every person who has ever graced the face of this planet has as well. We can't lose it. We can't change it. We can't alter it in any way. It is ours. Help us to find the desire to let go of everything that would keep us from the full impact, the full recognition of what that means that we have this right to your love, that your love is the ground of our being. Help us become willing to go through the difficulties and the hardship of the interior revolution that will clear us out and allow us to see exactly who you are, who we are, and what this world is all about as seen through your eyes. Thank you for everything that you've given us, even the founding documents of our nation that can give us another perspective, another facet of the path to you. And through it all, thank you for your love and your constancy, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.